Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Lots to talk about, and of course, it is so much about Washington as well. Joining us from Maryland and the senator from Maryland, Ben Cardin. Senator, good morning. It's good to be with you. Thank you. It has been an extraordinary week in Washington. It has been a week of uh, uh, fractious ideas of racism, bigotry. We see more of that in the tweets this morning from the president. We'll get to that. Please address to me how you are speaking to this to your constituents across the state of Maryland. Well, it has been a shocking week, I would say, in regards to the president's response to Charlottesville. Uh, There were not two sides to this. Uh, The neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, uh, their message is one that is just so much against American values uh, that the president had to have moral clarity, and he missed that opportunity. And he did not bring our country together. And that was uh, just a tragic moment. And we're all trying to figure out how to move forward. Uh, But we we recognize that what the president did uh, hurt our country and does not speak to our values. You have an interesting heritage and calculus here, not only of Maryland with 300 years ago, sort of the Catholic outlier, if you would, with across Protestant colonies, but with your father running a neighborhood, or your grandfather rather running a neighborhood grocery store ages ago, and with your activity within the Jewish community. I read carefully yesterday Emma Green's important article on anti-Semitism in The Atlantic. Tell us about this new anti-Semitism that we have seen on the posters in Charlottesville and in too much of the reporting. Is it a different character than I knew in my childhood? Yes, it's it's not government-sponsored anti-Semitism, but it is a a movement that has gained momentum with nationalism and national pride, uh, a lack of, of tolerance for diversity. Uh, this is we've seen grown uh, in Europe now coming to the United States. Uh, I have uh, been very active in the OSCE, uh, the Parliamentary Assembly, uh, which involves Europe, Central Asia, and North America. Uh, I'm a special. I'm the special representative on anti-Semitism, racism, and intolerance. And I've seen in Europe. We saw this in France. We saw this in Scandinavian countries. We saw it in other countries. A growth of, of nationalism and anti-Semitism. We, we see it in Hungary. We see it in Poland. Other countries have experienced this. Uh, with President Trump's election, it's given momentum, unfortunately, to these types of, of, of racism and anti-Semitism, um, and uh, that should have no place here in the United States. No place anywhere in the world. Senator, is it only the Republican Party that can deal with that, and how will they deal with it? Well, in America, of course, our strength is with the people. Uh, So I think the people are speaking out, and I hope that there will be Republican leaders who will make it very clear uh, that they uh, will not support President Trump's uh, activities here. Uh, This should not be a partisan issue. Speaking out for American values uh, is what I think all of us believe is our first responsibility. It comes before party, and I would hope that we will see more unity in America speaking out against President Trump. 
do you believe um, President Trump's credential as a business president are tarnished forever because a lot of CEOs walked away from him yesterday? I think it's not about being a transactional president. Uh, his business dealings are somewhat suspect. Uh, but having said that, we want a person who's going to represent our values and be a leader for the international community uh, to fight uh, intolerance. And that's just not what President Trump has done. Uh, Senator Cardin of Maryland with us, of, of course, a Democrat. I think there's like four Republicans left in uh, in Maryland. So I'm kidding, of course. But, we, have a, we have a Republican governor. So well, we okay. Well, he's, then there's him and three others as well. <laughs> I kid. Ben Cardin, the victim du jour for the president of the United States is Colonel Graham of South Carolina. Lindsey Graham uh, is a most interesting guy with his focus on the military. He's been someone who's done battle with the Tea Party. What is the damage that you see of an executive officer who has to take a shot at a given senator every every other day, if you would? Well, you're, you're correct. Uh, senator Graham has been outspoken against President Trump on so many different issues. We've worked together, two of us, uh, on a Russia strategy to counter Russia's aggression against the United States when the president was very silent about it, in fact, moving in the wrong direction. Um, and, and, uh, senator Graham has been uh, what, what he normally does. He speaks out for what he believes in. But we need more senators to do exactly what Senator Graham has done. Will they in, in from September onwards? I hope so. Uh, you know, obviously, we return in September, and our number one agenda is to pass a budget to deal with the debt ceiling and to take up tax reform. So there, we have major hurdles that have to be accomplished yeah. before the end of the month. So it would be difficult to see uh, how we can avoid trying to work together, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans, and, and sort of putting the president aside. In Francine, I'm pleased to inform you, and Senator Cardin, you as well, that we moved on from the senator from South Carolina. We're now enjoying going after the senator, the junior senator of Arizona. Uh, he, this, uh, senator Cardin, I, we're honored to have you on to respond to this. The president of the United States moments ago, Great to see that Dr. Kelly Ward is running against Flake. Jeff Flake, who is weak, capital W-E-A-K, weak on borders, crime, and a non-factor in the Senate. He's toxic, exclamation point. Senator Cardin, give us the real world of uh, looking across the aisle at the good Jeff Flake of Arizona. How toxic is he? Well, you know, clearly... What the American people want us to do is Democrats and Republicans to work together to get things done in the best interests of the American people. Uh, when you're talking about issues such as Russia's attack against the United States or you're looking at racism or you're, you're looking at tax reform or, or health care, the American people do not want us to be partisans. They want us to work across the, the aisle. President Trump, I can't figure him out. If you don't agree with him, you're his enemy. And it's uh, his... Uh, bullish attitude is just terrible. He's a bully. And uh, it, yeah. it's not what we should have as President of the United States, and it, it, we're, we're paying a heavy price for it today. Senator, thank you for joining us this morning, coast to coast. Senator Cardin is the Democrat from Maryland. David Harrell joins us now. He has been on fire with international investment with a terrific track record with Harrow, uh, with Harrow, Harris Associates. David, as, as many of our listeners know, coast to coast, 
you have been involved in politics in your Wisconsin, I believe, of a Republican favor. You've been a student of what's going on in Washington. Mr. Trump won the election off of Wisconsin. How is the uproar playing in your Wisconsin? Well, I'm actually heading up there in uh, just a few hours. I have some business up there, and then I'm going to stay up there for the weekend. I think the the whole uh, Trump administration has gone through little periods of uproars, and you know, they, things settle down, and then something else comes up. Things settle down, something comes up. It's almost as if people are getting used to it. And I think some of the basic reasons why Mr. Trump won are, are still in place. And even though he can't seem to keep himself out of these uproars, some of the policy prescriptions, some of the people around him are are being very well received in not just Wisconsin, but we'll call it the places that pushed him over the line. And so I think people just realize that, you know, this guy is not on a, a horizontal plane. There's a third dimension. He's not a typical politician. He's not as coached as the typical politicians are. In fact, he doesn't quite yeah. know their game. And these things okay. are, are hurting him. But here's but David. They, yeah, David, yeah. here's what all of our audience wants to know. More than anyone we speak to, you understand the fiber and fabric of the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. There seems to be a primal Democrat and Republican scream, Speaker Ryan, do something. What is your prescription for Paul Ryan come this autumn? They have to move policy along. They cannot get snagged up as they did in the health care plan and health care bill. There are a number of things which they should be easily able to, or maybe not easily, but they should be able to come to grips on. So they have to get runs on the board. And it doesn't have to be a grand slam all at once. You have to start chipping away at the agenda, the agenda regulatory reform, the agenda tax reform, uh, the, you know, these, the agenda infrastructure. Uh, these are things that they have to start legislating. And uh, both Mr. McConnell and Mr. Ryan, I, I believe they understand this quite clearly, um, you know, healthcare. They unfortunately tackled the most tricky and difficult uh, issue first. Hi, David. It's Francine. Will President Trump be facing? So he's facing a mass exodus, right, of the CEOs he once courted. If he goes back to policy, can he, you know, get them back? Yeah, I don't know if it is a max exodus. I mean, certainly there are some people who wanted to make a statement. But I think if in private you would talk to some CEOs, and I won't mention who, but I spoke to a CEO of a global company last night, and, and clearly they are aligned with, you know, it's never 100% Francine, but they're probably aligned with 75, 80, 90% of what the president is trying to accomplish. And I think what we've seen happen is CEOs become very thin-skinned. They become very scared. And, and this has been boiling over, over the years. Um, and they don't want to take on social activists, so they just kind of quietly give them some. Uh, and so, and, and this is what we're seeing today. Um, they become a bit more political and less apolitical. So, right. and that's that's their choice. That's their choice, and if that's what they want to do, fine. But I think still the Trump agenda is consistent with 
what most CEOs want. And as such, they will help working to get that uh, agenda right. accomplished. Well, Dave, what I'm trying to understand is that are the goals more difficult to achieve if the business community would now rather stay out of the White House? Um, I don't think so. I, I think the business community is supportive of the goals, and I think they will work behind the scenes to help press the accomplishment of these goals uh, just because they're not on these formal councils, especially given his, uh, the president's experience in business and he has relationships with many of these people anyway. It isn't like the last president who kind of disdained business and didn't have relationships that he uh, might have had with these business people. Would he be able to, to pass tax reform through if he, um, if he gets, you know, back on message, inverted commas? Yeah, I think he should be able to get tax reform, and especially when you look at areas like corporate tax reform, where even in the last few years you've had Democrats supportive of it. And I think this, these are the things that they must really focus on. And I'm glad, for instance, that they pulled the border adjustment tax out of the one of the bills because this just seemed to be a gimmick that unless you had a real strong belief in, in certain portions of economic theory, it wasn't going to work. It was going to be very distortive. And they pulled that out, and so hopefully now they could start marching ahead with a yeah. less distortive, more clean tax reform bill. David, uh, your world is boom or bust, and you have been a boom, boom, boom. You have been an extraordinary track record. Has a boat left the dock on international investment, or can other uh, people climb on USS Harrow? No, I think the, the boat, is, you know, the easy boarding has, has happened. Um, if we take the baseball analogy, Tom, I think we're probably in about the third or fourth inning. So we're a third of the way, halfway through the game. What we've finally seen, what we've finally seen is kind of a recovery in one of the world's biggest uh, economic regions that has been slow to recover uh, since the last uh, global recession. And now we're finally starting to see it, and it's coming from a number of different reasons. I mean, there's been accommodative monetary policy, yes. There has been structural economic reform in certain areas in the mm -hmm. periphery that mm -hmm. needed it. Ireland, Spain, Portugal, even Italy. Francine and mine's Italy. Um, <laughs> and so we, we've seen recovery take place, and we've seen it kind of go through uh, this political cycle where there was a fear that, you know, economic nationalism yeah. and whatever. So all this is finally starting to get behind us, and we're starting to see growth and growth in earnings. Yeah. And as such, when you compare it to the valuations yeah. that you are getting in Europe today yeah. uh, versus yeah. where we are in the earnings cycle, yeah. There is uh, there is a compelling argument to be made. Yeah. Now, now, valuations are higher than they were David, a year ago, so that's why I yeah. say the third or fourth inning. David, I don't care. Third or fourth inning. David, can the Brewers catch the Cubs? I mean, four in a row. Manny Pena's killing it against Pittsburgh. Can your Milwaukee Brewers catch the dreaded Chicago Cubs? Well, they're not the dreaded Chicago Cubs, Tom. They're, they're a very good baseball club, and yeah. um, I, I think the Cubs just have too much talent. And uh, really, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think that I think the Cubs are in a good position. Yeah, Milwaukee Brewers four in a row. There it is. But now the, the Green Bay Packers will, in all likelihood, oh. win the Super Bowl uh, this coming you up know, in January. Do you Minnesota. understand that Francine Lacroix knows nothing, David, about the Green Bay Packers? I do know. I, she you know, I, know Francine, I got to take you to a game. You know, you <laughs> right, deal. 
deal. Um, Tom will come too, and he'll be drinking those red things. You have your uh, those. Put a cheese head hat on. We'll give you a bratwurst, sauerkraut, <laughs> mustard. Oh, uh, Francine, I would Only. pay. I would I would pay to see you Only if you both come to either the Palio in Siena or oh. a cricket game. Oh, David. I want to go to the I want to go to the Siena Palio. That's right. when they uh, march the horses, race the horses. I'm just, yesterday. I'm just trying to get a beverage, oh. uh, David. I'm trying to get a beverage of my choice with Francina Claridge's. Is all I'm trying to look for. We'll continue with David Harrow. David, let's really stay on what has made you successful, and so much of that was patience on European banks from the so-called Lehman Low. BNP Paribas of France up 185%, 13.5% per year. You enjoyed a second chance to buy it uh, in the uh, depths of 2012 as well. Is there more room to run on the European banks because they're not as Anglo-American as Jamie Dimon's fortress? You know, this is one of the areas where I think there is still a deep pocket of value around the globe today is in the European financial sector. Whether it be, you mentioned BNP or Allianz or even Credit Suisse, a recovery story. Um, there in Tessa Sao Paulo, the uh, Italian bank. I mean, what has happened is over the last, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years, not only have stocks, which have always been kind of a conduit to how people feel about the global economic situation, but the banks and European banks in particular have moved so abruptly during any kind of macroeconomic disturbance. They've really been the lightning rod. And despite the fact that the prices of these stocks have been very reactive, the underlying buildup of intrinsic value has not. For yeah. instance, in the last two or three years when people feared all these negative rates and loan growth would just destroy yeah. banks' earnings, they haven't. They haven't because the management teams have just put their heads down and continued right. to cut costs. They've built capital. They did all the things they're supposed to do. And most importantly, they have protected earnings. So this was during a bad period, and now we're starting to have a good period. Loan right. losses continue to trickle down, and now credit growth is starting well, to pick up. I want, so I want that, Francine yeah. to get in here with her expertise. So Francine, I would note with a big dividend, 4.1% on BMP Paribas, that total return from the Lehman Low is around 16.4% per year. Yeah, and if you look at the French banks, of course, they've they've been performing, um, you know, for the last four years, they get stronger than the Italian banks. So my question to David would be, why take a bet on Italian banks when we have a, a possible, you know, elections coming up, certainly before May of next year, that could go badly wrong? Yeah, they could go wrong. And again, this is one of the reasons why all these these banks and financials have have not really performed because people keep fearing the next referendum, the next election, and what's going to happen. But ultimately what happens is these businesses adjust. The system heals itself. And these uh, fears often, to me, provide buying opportunities. You have to look through the cycle. What's actually happened in the Italian banking sector has been very good. There's finally some cleanup going on, and we're starting to see economic growth. And the political fears perhaps today are less than what they were a few months ago, and we start to see some of the results of the local elections and what some of the periphery parties don't seem to be faring as strongly. So when you combine all these things, I think, if anything, it leads to perhaps there should be more interest in Italian banks, except for the fact that 
again, you know, these prices have bounced in, in Italian banks in the last year over year, probably even more so than some of the others. So, the, again, the easy pickings are over, but I think there's still a good opportunity there. Um, David, what do you make of, so the ECB officials today were expressing concern over the risk of a euro overshoot. What would that do to bank valuations? Yeah, you know what I think eventually what has to happen is in the short term, who knows what kind of noise is out there. But over the medium and long term, if the European economy continues to pick up strength, and if you continue to see stabilization in price levels, you will begin to see interest rate normalization, which will be very good for European banks. No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. I don't believe it's going to happen overnight. But I think we're getting towards the bottom of mm-hmm. this whole negative low interest rate cycle. And I'd rather be you know, right. towards the bottom, an investor, yeah. and not towards the beginning of you know getting yeah. us to the bottom. Do you have a small local Italian bank, Francine, can load the boat on so she can retire young <laughs> and under thirty? I told her under to invest 30. in Tessa Sao Paulo. You get a nice dividend yield. It's you know, oh, probably seven, you. almost a, seven. That's a widow's stock. She needs something gamier. Do you have something on Sicily where she can, like, you know, you know, is there like a small bank on Sicily that she could go visit? I just want to retire. Forget investing. If she wants something (laughs) gamey, she could buy ticker symbol race. And, you know, that will get her around the track. Very good, David Harrow. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a little rich. It's a little rich, Francine. It's no longer value. You're bold. Betting, I like it. Your betty tip for the day with David Harrow of Harris Associates. I should point out, folks, within the comedy that we do not do buy, hold, sell here, and we scrupulously identify any positions we may hold. Yeah. Um, In Europe, we don't at all, Tom. Yeah, you know. In it's, the UK. It, it's, we just don't do buyout sell at Bloomberg. We decided not to do that a long time ago. That was great. David Harrell, thank you so much. Congratulations on your international patience. For those of you, whatever your ilk, whatever your persuasion dying for long-term perspective on this American economy. This is your interview of the week, if not for the month of August. Douglas Brinkley is at Rice University. He's one of the nation's treasure. I get a royalty check from him every year for his one-volume Cronkite, which I tell every single media type that walks in here is the one book to read. I tell that, Doug, particularly to the interns, to shut up and read Cronkite, and you'll do better than good. You've done so much for our American fabric. How much are we torn asunder in this August of 2017? Uh, well, thank you for the nice words about Cronkite. Um, look, I, I teach at Rice. I'm about ready to teach three classes in U.S. history. And I always tell my students the point of history is to remind us that our own times aren't uniquely oppressive. As bad as things are this August, as divided as we feel, our country's gone through worse crucibles. Um, you know, all you have to do is to talk about the Civil War and the 700,000 dead and a country torn apart, or even the fact that during the Vietnam War, when we were torn between hawks and doves, we lost over, you know, 50,000 U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. So it's always important to put things in perspective. With that said, um, it's brutal out there right now. Yeah. I mean, the, the hatred between Americans is fierce. And a Charlottesville, um, I think, is a very dark chapter 
in 21st century American history. We noticed your uh, contribution with Mr. Ambrose to the Eisenhower Center. Last night, I was dismayed by the simplicity of debate of our first president of the United States and one R. Lee, whose house overlooked uh, Washington, D.C. Tell me here how you synthesize this debate of Washington and Robert E. Lee. Um, well, you know, you have, we're, we're, look, we're a more multicultural society. Um, progress marches onward. A new generation uh, is very removed from even the idea of why there would be Confederate monuments um, spread all over the country. When you live in the South, like I do, I was born in Georgia, lived in Louisiana. I'm living in Texas now. It's a little closer to home. You go yeah. Small towns, and you see a Civil War statue. I'm of the belief that these Confederate statues need to come down, and the ones on American presidents should stay up. Uh, any, any uh, George Washington, who uh, won our revolution for us, who fought at the Valley of Valley Forge, um, who you know won at Yorktown. He was the person we wouldn't have been a country without Washington. Uh, Jefferson with the Declaration of Independence, the Louisiana Purchase. We could go on. But they fought for America. They were fought for the United States. The Confederates broke away from the Union. They were secessionist. They um, tried to undermine. Um, our American democracy. And in fact, both Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee yeah. at the ends of their lives said, no monuments. We yeah. don't, we need to unite. Don't, don't do not, um, us any favors by honoring us. Douglas, I, I, I really want to emphasize here that the effort that we've done at Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance is under the guise of an ahistorical America. I tweeted out last night the killer angels of Michael Sharma in Gettysburg. I mean, I think a lot of people are completely ignorant of the debate of the Confederacy at the important point of Gettysburg, the debate of Longstreet and Robert E. Lee about exactly how to prosecute an underfunded war against the Union. We, we, are we that ahistorical now? We are, and I don't blame the young people. I blame us, uh, the adults. Uh, we, have, um, we have denigrated the, the importance of American history. I have three kids um, in either middle school or high school, and we just don't do a great job out of it, out of it. Now, you know, parents are going to have to be the teachers of history. So um, a, we have a history deficit disorder going on yeah. in this country, and it hurts us terribly. Uh, there, you know, people don't even, you can ask a lot of young people and adults, you know, what, is, what happened in World War I? Nobody will know. Um, you yeah. know, what was the War of 1812? You get a blank stare on your uh, yeah. And so you, you almost have to, as a, as a public historian like I am, you almost have to be a preacher. You have to be preaching the importance of history all the time to people and, uh, yeah. and try to make, find ways to make it more interesting and relevant. What would Hunter Thompson say about this moment? You're the executor of his wonderful work. What would the uh, gentleman Hunter Thompson say of this? Oh, God. Hunter, Hunter, uh, you know, Hunter would have had a field day with Donald Trump um, the same way that he did with Richard Nixon uh, because he always tried to go after bullies. And uh, people he thought were, were um, you know, over, uh, overusing their power, uh, where you know he he would have savagely uh, lampooned Trump in many different ways. I'm positive about that. Uh, you know, Hunter though believed in the in voting. He always never missed one time in his life voting. 
he would get involved with local politics in Colorado, and maybe that's a big point. I mean, to for yeah. listeners, we all probably need to be a little more politically well, aware. We all, you know, in, whether on a city council, school board, uh, we have to be pro-democracy activists, well, Americans. Let's come back and particularly bring in Francine Lacroix with a, a more global view. We are honored to bring you today worldwide and across America, Douglas Brinkley of Rice University. And this is well-timed moments ago, the president of the United States tweeting out, quote, sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. We're speaking with Douglas Brinkley of Rice University. We've had an impassioned conversation, hugely informative with a, one of our acclaimed historians about the president and the moments from Charlottesville. But Francine, what people don't know is this is an historian with a wonderful historic perspective on Dean Acheson and particularly his first book, Francine, and one of my heroes, Jean Monnet, The Path to European Unity, was how Brinkley cut his teeth. This is back. He did this, Francine. Brinkley, young Brinkley, would dip the quill into the ink pot to handwrite his book on Jean Monnet. It was that long ago. Francine Douglas Brinkley of Rice University. Yeah, Professor, before we get on to Jean Monnet and the important things that he's done and, and some maybe that he could have done better, has America changed forever in the last seven days? Um. We're in a uh, holding pattern right now. Um, you know, I'll be interested to see why people in the uh, upper Midwest, uh, Ohio, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, don't speak up more uh, about the Civil War issue. I mean, they, these are states that are, are celebrating the Union Army and uh, constantly viewing this new neo-Confederate movement. I'm, I'm wondering why people in that region never comment as a, um, you know, about what's going on with this sort of new wave of neo-Nazi, neo-Confederatism. But I think we're going to be okay. We'll get through this. I mean, we have elections. We have a very active press. We have a judicial system. Our country was built with uh, checks and balances. It's definitely a time of a crisis in confidence about Congress and about the White House. And President uh, Trump, in my view, is skating on very thin ice with both the Russia probe and his lack of moral authority um, in the wake of Charlottesville, but the United States will, uh, will still remain strong. What would one of the founding fathers of the EU, Jean Monnet, that uh, Tom so nicely framed, make of all of this? You know, Jean Monnet loved the United States. Um, he was, he used to, he made, he spoke really American Canadian English. He used to sell c- a cognac uh, all over Canada. Um, became great friends with Americans like uh, former Undersecretary of State George Ball and Dean Acheson and others. And Monet would have been, I think, very worried about the rift in NATO and U.S.-European identity. He would have been very concerned that this march to global economic markets, the sense of, uh, you know, this this kind of rear garden nationalism that's nativism that's that's rearing up not just in the United States but in many European countries. There was concern Monet a great deal. He thought through economic integration um, you would be able to contain in, in um, war that you would have a a world more peaceful if people had you know shared economic interest and values. So uh, I think what Monet would be most concerned about is the this. Difficult times in the um, the Atlantic Alliance 
and the fact that the European Union, uh, which was his, he kind of was the godfather of, um, is, is going through a very difficult period right now. Yeah, I think he, he also came up with the Monet plan, which um, was, you know, taking control of some of the coal-producing areas in Germany and trying to put them in France. I mean, this was a France that needed reconstruction, completely dependent on coal. How do you think historians, Professor, will look onto the last two to three years, the EU, but also the U.S.? What will be the main theme running through it? Um, in the United States, it's how after 9-11, we became a kingdom of fear in the United States. Uh, it wasn't just the creation of our Homeland Security Department, which was a good thing, or the protecting of our airports. Um, they cracked down on terrorism, but the public at large got fearful of otherness, uh, a rise of xenophobia, a prejudice, bigotry. Uh, we've had these waves in American history. We've had, you know, the Alien Sedition Act early in American history, or McCarthyism. Yeah. Um, but, but the fact that we were hit that kind of uh, crescendo yet again this late in the 21st mm. century is the main narrative. Yeah. Douglas Brinkley, one final question. You have a terse sentence from a gentleman by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in your book Rise to Globalism with the great Stephen Ambrose. I hate war. Does our present president hate war? It's a good question. I think he does. I mean, we can't say so far that President Trump has, has made any uh, false moves towards war. Uh, but what he's doing is, I, I'm worried, is by pulling out of uh, trade agreements and by turning Americans on each other is, is making the United States no longer a kind of a, a beacon for moral authority, but uh, a kind of shrinking of our role in the world. Douglas Brinkley, thank you so much. And again, folks, I can't say enough. If you have any interest in the modern media, Douglas Brinkley's one volume on Walter Cronkite is absolutely fantastic. Douglas Brinkley with Rice University. This is a joy. Uh, we have been doing everything we can to bring you the tapestry of America, the pressures faced by all of our politicians in these extraordinarily interesting and historic times. What an honor to have Douglas Brinkley on with us. He is from the 8th Congressional District of Washington State, and it is the oddest district. It is not the fields to the east in Spokane. It is not Starbucks in Seattle. We're going to have Dave Reichardt explain to us what a Republican from the 8th Congressional District, what the terrain is. How many grizzly bears are in your district? <laughs> you know, I've lost count. <laughs> I, haven't seen one, I haven't seen one personally yet. So <laughs> you are, you are, I'll, uh, I'll get back to you on that one. Are you, are you are active in trade, uh, Congressman. Wonderful to have you with us today. Are you the congressman from Boeing? Well, I, I have the uh, largest uh, employee base in uh, in the eighth district. So, yeah. some of the smaller facilities are in the district, but uh, largest employee base. Yeah, this is very important. Uh, let us get to the the moment in Washington in a bit. Let's actually talk about trade right now. What is Dave Reichardt's most constructive trade policy for America in the next five to ten years? 
Well, I, I think when you look at, in, again, I'm glad you used the word constructive. It, it really, uh, it's, it's about setting a high standard. It's about the United States being a, a leader in trade and us setting the standard across the country. And that's, you know, that's a standard now in this new uh, day and age of uh, high-tech um, smartphones, um, and and uh, intellectual property uh, protection, um, you know, labor uh, uh, protections and environmental protections. Those are high standards that need to be sent, uh, set across the globe. And, and I believe that the United States is, is really the only country that has the, the leadership uh, capability of, of leading other countries uh, into setting those high standards so that everyone then is becomes productive. Uh, in their own countries, in, in creating jobs and a, and, a, and, a, and a better lifestyle for the for the citizens that live in their countries. But has the U.S. set the example? Well, I, I think yes. You know, when you look at um, when you look at the the, the recent agreements, so uh, those being Korea, Colombia, and Panama, uh, backstarted. Uh, you know, when when the Bush administration was uh, in um, in in uh, power. Uh, and then finally um, came to fruition under Obama. I think those are high standard agreements that, that address the intellectual property issues and financial services mm -hmm. and others. But I, but I think we have an opportunity here now too. You know, since TPP is set, set been set aside, and looking at other agreements like NAFTA uh, and relooking at, at Korea gives us opportunities to even right. even set the bar. Higher. If you're just joining us, folks, Dave Reichert with us from the 8th Congressional District, Washington State. For those of you globally, this is the state of Washington out off the rim of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Dave Reichert, you are more qualified than anyone in Congress to speak on law and order. You've lived it. You were sheriff of King County, Washington. You were president of the Washington State Sheriff's Association. When you look at how the president treats law and order with the uproar that we've all seen the last five, six days, what is your counsel to what members in uniform in this country, what they need to do, given the turmoil that we've seen since Charlottesville? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm qualified to answer that question, but I don't, I don't know if I would put myself in the category of being the most qualified. But after 33 years in law enforcement uh, and, and growing up uh, essentially in that uh, profession, yeah. Uh, today is especially challenging. Uh, I, I, I am, first of all, pleased that the president recognizes the, the service and the sacrifice that law enforcement members and their families make. But I'm also concerned at some of the remarks that he makes that really ignites uh, some of the, the situations around the country and puts police officers in those situations that really uh, may not have occurred uh, if it weren't for some of the words that were used uh, by the president. And I think that his job really is to, um, you know, to step in and be the calming voice. Uh, for officers, you know, my advice um, really is to continue to do what they do in a professional way, 
diffusing situations, treating people with respect and dignity, and that's and you know that's been my experience throughout my law enforcement right. career. Ninety nine point nine percent of law enforcement officers there are there with the heart of a servant. Dave Reichardt, how close is this president to losing core Republicans that took a chance on Donald Trump? Is that within hours? Is it within days? Or is it just waiting the next absurdity? How close is it to losing lying Republicans? Well, uh, you know, that's a question uh, that we can speculate on, but I, you know, I wouldn't be able to to give you any kind of an accurate answer on, on that. Um, I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, there, there is support for, uh, when you look at trade, for example, there certainly is support for the, the trade agenda as we move forward. And when you look at the trade agenda, let's just use that as an example. I think it's imperative, it's so critical and imperative for the president and the administration to work with Congress. And, and not go off on its own tangent here and, and stick to the conservative principles which uh, most Republicans stand for. Um, and I'm one of those moderate Republicans. Let's work with each other. Let's get things done together. Let's find a way forward to solving problems like immigration, like trade, like tax reform, like health care. Those are things that we can accomplish, but we can't do it running off in, in a separate direction. We need to work together. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that when we look at, at the trade thing, that, that uh, you know, that Ambassador Lighthizer and I have a great relationship working closely together and moving this country forward and, and trying to find a pathway to uh, to new trade agreements, especially uh, as we start the renegotiation rene- of NAFTA. And Dave Riker, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you in our Washington studios, 99.1 FM studios in Washington. He is a congressman from the 8th Congressional District of Washington State, uh, this to the southeast, uh, the southeast rather, and then around up north of Seattle. Good morning, everyone. Francine McQuad in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. In a moment, we are going to talk technology and the cloud. And we're going to do that with a guy with truly one of the most interesting CEO jobs in America. I'm going to cut to the chase and say too many people make a compare and contrast of Cisco with international business machines. It's stunning when you look at the chart how that's not uh, valid. What we've got is IBM since 2013, as many people know, has been underperforming to say the least as they switch from hardware to software. And the complete opposite is true of Cisco. Cisco has been just absolutely extraordinary moving from 2013 up. It's a great a great testament to John Chambers with a, I'm going to call it a fractious Chambers era, is he handed it over to the mathematician from Chapel Hill. His name is Chuck Robbins. Chuck, wonderful to have you join us today. You're doing what everybody says can't be done, move from hardware to software. It is a, it's, like a, it's like a Chapel Hill or Harvard Business School <laughs> model. How much have you aged trying to get over to the cloud? <laughs> well, Tom, thanks for having me. It's uh, look, this is a it is a complicated transition, but it's one that uh, the great news is is that it's one that we embrace, our employees embrace, yeah. our 
customers actually want us to move this way. And frankly, when we get through it, I think Wall Street right. will appreciate it. <clears throat> a couple of call-outs from this quarter. We, we kicked off a cycle of, of innovation that's going to continue for several years. We, we actually launched this reinvention of networking right. in June <clears throat> around intent-based networking, which was well-received. Right. And then we also, at the same time, are working through this software transition. And, you know, our deferred revenue related to our software portfolio grew 50% and actually exceeded okay. $5 billion this quarter. So well, it's, uh, we're making okay. a lot of progress. There's the good news, and there's a lot of progress, and that's what a CEO is to say. Unfortunately, you're the only CEO I'm going to talk to except James Gorman and John Cryan, who understands partial differentials. You know that the time axis, the x-axis, is what matters here. Do you have to speed up this transformation? Well, I think we have been speeding it up. If you go back to the, the size of our deferred software business as a, as a key metric that talks about this transition, you know, two years ago it was growing in the mid-20s. Now it's growing 50 percent. So okay. we're seeing not only the number get much bigger, but it's also accelerating the growth rate. And we're just beginning to actually take that software model to our core switching platforms, and you're going to see us take it to our routing platforms because the progress we've made to date has been around collaboration, security, and other elements of our mm -hmm. portfolio. So bringing it to the core is the big right. needle mover for us, and that's what we're embarking on right now. One more quick question. I want to get to my colleague, Francine Lacroix, in London. Chuck Robbins, when I look at Cisco and I look at the dynamic, the sell side is using the word lackluster. Push against that. Why is the sell side wrong that it's a lackluster Cisco? Push against that idea. Well, Tom, I think that... You know, people tend to look at things in a very short-term view. And what we're doing is we're focused on this transformation over a period of time. And it's complicated when we have a hardware business and a software business. And by the way, we're still going to build the best hardware on the planet because the Internet needs it. But um, it's, it's a longer-term transition. And for our long-term investors, they actually get it. And those people who are focused on, you know, the next 60, 90, 120 days, it's going to be a little tougher for them to digest. But uh, our customers believe in it, our employees believe in it, and uh, I think our long-term investors do. Francine? Yeah, uh, good morning, Chuck, from London. What will happen to your margins? So margins were rocked. When can you get them back? Hey, Francine, thanks for having me as well. Um, you know, our margins have been quite healthy. And, you, you know, we've talked about, we just did our financial analyst conference. And when you look at the, the transition to software, clearly over time, we actually think that has the opportunity to enhance our margins. So we're optimistic about our ability to continue to have healthy margins. Uh, and also to, as we bring more and more of this software to our core technologies, we think that can help as well. How can you compete with Amazon? So I'm looking at, you know, Amazon.com's Amazon Web Services. Well, we actually don't compete with Amazon. We actually are, uh, are looking at a partnership because there's a public cloud side, there's a private cloud. And then what our customers are increasingly realizing is that their IT assets of the future are going to span public cloud, private cloud, SaaS platforms, and also lots of connections at the edge. Think about moving connected vehicles, connected mining operations, oil and gas. And so actually bridging the applications and the technology from the public cloud into their private data center applications and all the way out to the edge, the underlying <clears throat> common denominator there is the network. So we believe that the network is going to be more relevant in this new world than it even has been over the last 10 years. So we think there's a great opportunity, as does Amazon and the other cloud players, to actually partner on how we enable our customers to uh, 
right. to deal with this new evolving architecture. But Chuck, it was my understanding that owners of you know facilities, for example, like the Amazon Web Services, are also um, building their own hardware and therefore replacing you know the, the traditional suppliers of servers. Yeah, we actually uh, we're actually working with all of the web scale providers. Some of them have chosen to build some of their own technology. Uh, in many cases, that was because there wasn't anything that had been designed for the architecture they were trying to build. It wasn't because they were trying to save 5% on the CapEx. It was because the technology and the integration with their architecture actually didn't exist. So we've actually been working with each of them, and we've been making progress over the last you know, two years actually in helping meet their needs. And I'm actually very comfortable where we are with them as customers right now, and I think you're going to see that uh, see our success yeah. here continue over the next couple of years. Chuck, one final question. There is always this compare and contrast. I used to bust John Chambers' chops about it with IBM. In this, this business model of hardware to software, what is the next great challenge for you if it's not the timeline I was talking about earlier? What's the to-do list for you for the next 12 months to be blunt to not be IBM? Well, I think the big thing is we have to drive the successful transition of our business model in our core technologies. That's the real thing that we're focused on. And we launched that in June. We launched a new platform. Yeah. And we launched an advanced software subscription on top of that platform for the first time ever. And we've, we've seen that, uh, the embracing of that technology architecture by our customers. And actually, the great majority of them are actually choosing to also buy that advanced subscription in addition to that network switch, which is something that people were skeptical that we could pull off. But if you look at the technology we put in that subscription, Tom, things like being able to identify malware inside encrypted traffic, that's a capability that customers are quite willing to buy into the subscription model for, and that's what's in that uh, subscription. So uh, I think that's the biggest thing we're going to execute on over the next 12 to 24 months. Chuck Robbins, I want to get you on set with us on radio and television worldwide, and I want to talk to you about kids and mathematics. I don't know when you're going to be in New York next, but I would love, I'm not going to talk about Chapel Hill basketball. I want to talk to you as a mathematician about what we do about kids in this nation in mathematics. Chuck Robbins, CEO of Cisco. Look forward to that. Of course, Cisco out. Many on the sell side through Bloomberg Intelligence saying a little bit lackluster. Francine Lacroix, thank you in London. In New York, I'm Tom Keen. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.